If you have a Bible, go to John chapter 12, John chapter 12. My full name is Lashley Todd Banks, and it is my, comes from my great-grandmother's maiden name, and then it became my grandfather's name, and then it was handed down to me. And so if, I kind of know how long you've known me as to whether or not you call me Lash or Lashley. If, you, if we go way back, you might call me Lashley. And so for the first 16, 17 years of my life, most people referred to me as Lashley. And then whenever I got old enough, when I started getting a lot of telemarketing calls, I would answer the phone and I would say hello, and they'd say, yes, I'm looking for Lashley Banks. Is she in? (laughs) Well, this is she. And then there was a very awkward pause after that. So I began shortening, shortening it to Lash, which solved the gender problem. I mean, nobody thinks I'm a girl anymore when they hear my name, yet it still creates a little bit of an issue because when your name is Lash and you give that out like on the phone, like you're making an appointment for something, and you're like, yeah, my name's Lash, and people imagine me to be like a biker or a rocker type guy, you know, really long hair and come in, and then they get a preacher, and it kind of surprises them along the way because what they imagine is different than the reality. You know, imagination's a wonderful thing. There there is nothing that I delight more in than whenever I hear my kids playing in their imagination. Isn't that just cool to hear your kids playing within their imagination? And as we move into adulthood, we continue to have an active imagination, yet it often comes out in different ways. Our imagination is what we use to perceive the world around us. A lot of times we use our imagination to develop perception of others, to develop perceptions of what life should be and how life is in other places of the world. Sometimes we use our imaginations to try to find meaning within life. But the problem comes when our imaginary image of what should be or what is is different than the reality. Did you know that Dallas is considered the capital of what is called a $30,000 millionaire. Do you know what a $30,000 millionaire is? It's a single guy who makes about $30,000 a year but tries to present himself to women as a wealthy guy. And so he buys like one set of really nice clothes and he wears those every time and he leases a nice car and he orders fine foods and fine wine whenever he goes out to dinner. But the reality is, is even though he presents this image... He's 30 years old. He has no life plan. He's living with his parents. He's playing video games down in the basement all day. He's trying to avoid his creditors and crashing weddings. That's the reality of who he really is. The imaginary image is different than the real image, and disaster occurs when his girlfriend finds out the truth. I mean, when his girlfriend finds out the truth, who he really is everything's off at that point. You say, now, Lash, where are you going with all this, okay? Because I would really like to know how this applies to the Bible at all. Well, I've discovered that often disaster occurs in the Christian life when the God that we imagine is different than the God that is. When our image of who God should be and what God should do is different than who God is and what he has done it often leads to disaster in the Christian life. 
Let me illustrate as we look at John chapter 12 today. John chapter 12 and verse 12 is what we often refer to as the triumphant entry of Jesus. The Bible records it this way. The next day when the large crowds had come to the festival, that had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Now it's the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And so many, many people are traveling to Jerusalem. This is when the Passion Week begins to unfold. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And so as he enters into the gates, they take palm branches and they begin laying it on the streets in front of him. And the Bible says they kept shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear no more, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that, that, that he had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, picture the scene. Jesus is coming into the ancient city of Jerusalem. He is riding down the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. He is riding on a young donkey into the city. As he goes down these slopes, he is passing caravans of people that are traveling, usually by foot, to the Passover feast there in Jerusalem. Scholars tell us that as many as 2.5 million people would converge upon the city of Jerusalem at Passover time. It was a packed out scene. And Jesus is going past these caravans of travelers. In the Old Testament, the prophets had prophesied about a Messiah, a Christ, which means an anointed one. And this Messiah would come to deliver God's people. This Messiah would be the king of kings. He would enter into the city in a triumph, entering in as the king. And the Messiah was coming to rescue God's people. Now, those that lived in Jesus's day, the Hebrew people, the Pharisees, they imagined this Messiah that had been prophesied about. And they imagined this Messiah as coming into the city as somewhat of the second coming of Moses. The Messiah would liberate them from their oppression. In this case, they were under the Roman Empire. So the Messiah would come in and he would liberate them from Rome. And he would become a great earthly king. And so in their minds, the Messiah would be a Jewish emperor. He would reign over all the world. In their imagination of what it should be, the Messiah would, Jesus, would become the king. He would sit on the throne. In their minds, God's people would become wealthier and healthier and happier and more powerful. In their minds, this hard life that they were enduring, this struggle just to get to their next meal, all that difficulty would be alleviated when the Messiah would come. It was an image of hope. 
It was an image of a new life for the people. So from their imaginations of what should be, they began creating a scene. And in their mind, what they were thinking was about to happen differed from reality. In the ancient world, they used to have what was called triumphs. You've probably seen it. You ever watch an old Roman movie and they have a triumph and the general comes back and all the people line the streets and they have these great celebrations. Anybody ever seen that? No? Y'all, y'all don't watch TBS much, huh? Okay. So they had triumphs in the ancient world. When a general went out and had great victories, the people would line the streets and they would welcome him back into the city. So as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, they organize an impromptu triumph. They line the street with palm branches. They are cheering. Here comes Jesus. The people from the second floors are probably throwing confetti. We are the champions is playing throughout the street. Well, maybe not that. But, you know, they're, they're excited about here comes Jesus into the city. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which literally means our Savior. Here comes our King. Here comes the one who will save us. Now, remember in their minds what did salvation look like? The king, Jesus, would go to the throne, he would overthrow Rome, and life was going to get better for them immediately. Now, fast forward to the end of the week. Jesus did indeed become a king. He was king over life and death. But the reality was totally different than what they imagined. In their minds, they imagined Jesus coming into Jerusalem and wearing a golden crown. But in reality, he wore a crown of thorns. In their minds, they imagined a political salvation. But in reality, he brought a spiritual salvation. In their minds, they imagined immediate glorification. He would become the great king But in reality, there was unimaginable humiliation. In their minds, they imagined a new life here on earth today. But in reality, Jesus brought eternal life in heaven. You see, the imaginary image of what God is supposed to be in our minds often differs from the reality of who God is and what he is doing. Now, where do we see the real image of God? We see it on the pages of Scripture as we read about God. There's a theological doctrine called the revelation of God. It's not referring to the last book of the Bible. It's referring to how has God revealed himself to us. And one of the core doctrines in Christianity is the idea that God didn't just start us and say, well, good luck with that. But God revealed himself to us so that we might know who he really is, his purposes, his ways. He went so far as to send his son so that we see God in action through his son. He gives us the Holy Spirit that we might live with him and, and hear the convictions of the Holy Spirit in our soul. So God is continually revealing himself to us. This is who I really am. This is who you are to worship. The Ten Commandments begin with two statements. And you may never have thought about this, but those two statements actually have a lot to do with our imaginations and God. The first commandment is this. Do not have any other gods before me or besides me. 
In other words, don't imagine anything else to be God but me. Don't imagine yourself as God. Don't imagine your family. Family is great, but family is not God. Don't imagine money to be God. Don't imagine the universe around you to be God. Don't imagine anything else as God besides me. That is at the very foundation of the Old Testament law. That is at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. We are monotheists. There is no other God but Yahweh. And nothing else should ever come before him. Now, do you remember the second commandment? After the first, he says, do not make a... Y'all are Old Testament scholars. I'm hearing mumblings, but do not do what? Don't make any, if you're, if you're King James, don't make a graven image. If you're NIV, do not make an idol for yourself. Okay. He goes on to say, uh, don't fashion God into something that is the stars or the birds or the fish. Don't fashion God into an image that is not the true God. Now, generally, whenever we preach that, we, we tend to preach it as you're not to worship statues or you're not to worship something that is, is you know, bow down like the golden calf in Exodus. And that's a valid, valid interpretation of what it means to worship idols. Uh, we also sometimes come at it as a standpoint of anything that you put in the spot, going back to commandment number one, anything that you put in that spot that belongs to God becomes your idol and you're worshiping that. I would also submit to you that there is a form of idolatry that occurs whenever we reshape God into something that he is not in our imaginations. We take the God that is revealed to us in Scripture and we reshape him into what we think he should be, into how we would do it if we were God. And we begin worshiping that God rather than the God that has been revealed to us in Scripture. In my mind, in my imagination, there are a lot of things that God should do. In my mind, God should always make sure my family is safe and healthy. Right? I mean, in my mind, that's how God should... My kids should never get sick. They should never fall. They should always be safe and healthy. The world should be safe for my little ones. In, in my mind... God should never expect me to be patient. All right? Do you ever have that same image of God? I mean, he should not expect me to be patient. If I'm single, he should bring the, 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 the man or woman of my dreams, uh, women for men, men for women. He should bring the person of my dreams immediately because I want instant satisfaction. I, I want instant God. In, in my mind, uh, God should be intensely interested in the outcome of Texas Ranger baseball games, okay? In my mind, God should never allow Nelson Cruz to have missed that ball, you know? Sorry, I didn't mean to bring up the painful past. of the, It's like pulling a scab off, isn't it? Uh, in my mind, God should transform Texas barbecue into health food. You know, the minute that that awesome, crusted, pink-lined, piece of brisket hits your plate. The vegetarians are getting nauseated right now, but the, the, it, it should be the, the molecular structure of brisket should be changed, for God's people at least, okay, into broccoli or Brussels sprouts so that it, it, it's healthy food. 
that's my mind. In my mind, God should do what I want him to do, and he should be like what I want him to be like. But then there's God. And God is often different than how I think he should be. That's part of being God. Now, what are some common images of God that people have? Well, a lot of people have an image of God as a grandpa God. God's kind of a nice old man, George Burns from the movie. And he's benign, and he's forgiving, and he wears cardigans. And when God meets children, he passes out worthers. And, you know, he's just kind of a a nice older gentleman. Some people have the image of God as, as a lottery God. God exists in heaven to give you things. And so his, his purpose for being is that he extends to you health and wealth and he just kind of makes it rain as he, he gives you things throughout life. Some people have the image of God as the man upstairs God. God is your buddy. He hangs out over the garage like Fonzie and whenever you have a problem, you dial 911 and he comes down the stairs and hey, he takes care of the deal, okay? Some of you have an image of God like the radar gun God. God hides out in the Murphy Road parking lot, and he watches you as you go up and down. Some of you all have driven down Murphy Road, and you've met our officers. Uh, he, dry, he watches you with that radar gun, and he's waiting for you to mess up. Because the moment that you mess up, he's going to go over to his box of lightning bolts, and he's going to take one and bam! Crispy critter. Okay? Some of you have the image of God as the politics God. Your image of God is that his highest priority is getting the people that you support elected to office. And these are all images of God that people take with them, and there's a a seed of truth in each of these. I mean, God is loving and caring and compassionate uh, like a godly grandfather. God does bless his children as he sees fit with material blessings. God does rescue us sometimes uh, during distress as the man upstairs. God does uh, watch his children and chasten his children and bring them back to himself. I believe God is interested in the fabric of a society and having leaders that are godly leaders. You look at how many times in the Old Testament it talks about godly leadership and the importance of that. So there is a seed of truth in all of that, yet all of those images of God are lacking in their totality. God is bigger than anything that you can imagine. He is more complex than what you can put into your box. And though I do not begrudge the study of theology, I've spent a lot of my life doing such. There is no theological system that can hold God tightly, no matter how, 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 how hard you hold to your five points. God is bigger than what we can imagine. Now, where do these false images of God develop? A lot of times they develop from bad teaching. I I say this a lot, and let me back up and first of all say that most pastors and preachers that I know are good guys. They love the Lord, they're imperfect, but they're good fellows trying to do their very best. But there are some folks out there that are are teaching a Christianity that is, is not complete. It may have parts of Christianity, it may look like Christianity and smell like Christianity, but it's not the totality of Christianity. And sometimes those guys teach bad images of God, and people get those and they, they, they put those into their life, and then they try to live it out in real time, and disaster occurs. A lot of times people get false images of God in the home from mom and dad. Now, let me say this. This is a, our family service in a lot of ways. 
one of the things that we believe here at the church is that you do not outsource the spiritual upbringing of your children. Let me rewind the DVR. You do not outsource the spiritual upbringing of your children. You as mom and dad, as grandma and grandpa, you are to be the primary spiritual leaders in your children's life. Your children are to be being taught the ways of God in the home. That is something that God placed upon mom and dad as a responsibility. You can't just put them in the van and bring them here once a week and expect them to be okay. It has to start in the home. And the church comes alongside you and helps you. But a lot of times, children in the home are getting false images of God and never fool yourself, they're always taking pictures. Whatever, however you're acting, however you're reacting, your children are always taking pictures of that, filing it away in their spiritual photo album, and they're making determinations and they're making, they're making uh, images of what God is like as they watch you go about living life. And when we present a false image of God in the home, when we present a hypocritical image of God in our home that contradicts what we do at church, it can affect your children and your grandchildren. It can affect your family for generations to come. Now, Dad, I don't, Dad, I don't mean to lay it on too thick here, but the Bible, our, our, our psychologists will tell you that a, children's, a child's image of God and what he's like often begins with their relationship with their father. The children begin thinking of God and forming their image of who he is and what he's like as they think about daddy. And so if you grew up with flower children, parents, you may have that image of God as he's just a grandpa God. If you grew up with real legalistic parents, you may have that image of God that he's the radar gun God waiting for you to mess up. If you grew up with, in an angry or a cold home, you may have an image of God that he is very wrathful or detached. You might really gravitate towards the holiness of God and struggle with the love of God or vice versa because sometimes we overcorrect from the home that we grew up in. It is critical that we do not teach, foster, or model imaginary images of God that contradict what God has said about himself on the pages of Scripture. You tracking with me? Now, I I see this as a pastor frequently. I see marriages get ruined because of what they think it should be versus what reality is. I see people go headlong into bankruptcy because they're imagining God's going to do this for me, and instead of being a good steward, they're being irresponsible. I see people that are angry. I see uh, judgmental spirits, disillusioned, apathetic. I encounter numb Christianity. And a lot of times when you dig down deep, at the root of it all is a false image of God. Now these people in Jerusalem, they had an image of what Jesus was supposed to be. He was to be an earthly king. He was to be the second coming of Moses. And whenever the reality of who Jesus was did not match up to the image of what they thought he should be, they killed him. 
The same crowd that at the beginning of the week was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes our king. Some of those same people were standing at the end of the week saying, crucify him, crucify him. And that's what happens often when we begin developing false images of God. When he doesn't live up to our expectations, kill him. I'll show him. I'll cut myself off from him. I'll grow numb. I'll grow apathetic. I'll quit doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'll cut him out of my life. And what is tragic here is stuck in their false image of what they thought the Messiah should be. They missed the Messiah right in front of them. When you are stuck in your imaginary image of this is what God should be and do, you often miss the reality of what he's doing. Now listen, God is bigger than my imagination. I I can't trap God into my false image. He's so much bigger than than me. God God is not a detached deity. I'm so thankful that God went out of his way to show me who he is and what he's all about. Jesus told us that whenever you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The way that Jesus lived, the way that he spoke, what he said, it's the word of God. We have the scriptures to guide us and to lead us. God has said, this is what I'm really all about. God has redeemed us in Christ. Think about that for a second. You are redeemed in Christ. Here is the biggest false image of them all, the scales. The scale says this, if I'm good enough, then whenever I get to heaven, God will look at my bad works and my good works and he'll say, well, you've done, you've done a few things wrong, but look at all this good that you did over here. Well, come on in. You know, you've done enough good things. They outweigh your bad things. Come on in. And a lot of people live with that image of God, and they, they develop this idea of God that I have to be lovely enough for him to love me. I have to be good enough for him to accept me. And the pages of Scripture teach us that God sent his son to redeem you, that God views his children through grace, that God loves you not on your own merits, because if he's simply loving you on your own merits, bring on the lightning bolt. He loves you through the merits of his son. He loves you whenever you believe in Christ because you are in Christ. And the image of the scales is a false image of God. And it leads to false Christianity. In life, you reflect what you're worshiping. If you worship football, you reflect it. If you worship food, you reflect it. I better move on. If you worship money... You reflect it. Let me challenge you to quit carrying around a false image of God. Because when you're worshiping that false image of God, you reflect it. You're reflecting it. Quit trying to make God into something you can control. Quit trying to play the role of God. God, this is what you should do. This is what you should be. God, this is what I think. God is not your genie in a bottle. Quit trying to trap him into something that, that allows you to play the God role and him to play the servant role. You exist for him. He doesn't exist for you. God is so much bigger than anything we can imagine. My friends, his grace, his love, 
his mercy, his goodness. These are the delights of life. And I challenge you to settle for nothing less than the real thing. Understand that his love for you is deeper than anything that you can imagine. And his grace extended to us is broader than anything that you can imagine. And his goodness is more amazing than anything you can imagine. And his plan for your life is so much brighter than the script that you can imagine. His holiness is so much more glorious than anything that we can imagine. Our God is good. Our God is gracious. Our God is holy. Our God is loving. Our God is real. And because of that, we don't have to worship some imaginary image within our minds because we worship the one true God. So when it comes to your God, never settle for anything less than the real thing. Because joy, the delights of life, are found in him. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment. For some this morning, it may need to be a day of salvation, and I will be here at the front. If, if you need to give your life to Christ for the first time today, come see me. I'll be here at the end of the service as well. I want to talk to you. I want today to be your day of salvation. We're going to worship, and as we do, if, if you need to pray during these moments, pray. If you need to write out the thoughts that you're having in your heart right now, write them out. If there's someone that God leads you to go pray to or pray for, go over to them and, and pray for them. The band's going to lead us in worship, and I encourage you to worship loudly. Lift your voice up to God. You say, Lash, singing's kind of hard for me. Just break through the wall Sing to God. It's the language of the soul. It's a gift from your God to you to be used in worship to him. Father, thank you that you are so much better than anything we can imagine. And Lord, I am mindful in this room that in this room today, there are some who are angry. There are some who have gotten trapped in apathy. Their soul has become numb. There are some whose anger has grown roots and they have become bitter. There are some that are just cynical. They hide behind their cynicism as a conversation point or as comedy. But in reality, that cynicism is flowing from a soul that is wounded. There are some people in this room today that are hurting people because they are hurting. And Father, a lot of times that comes from a false image of who you are. I pray, Lord, that we might worship the one true God. That we might devote ourselves to your teaching and to understanding your purposes and your ways. Lord, that we might, not, that we might never settle for anything less than you. Help us, Lord, to swim in the living water, to live in your delight, to find your joy. And Lord, we worship you today as our Savior and our Lord. In his name we pray and worship. Amen.